Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Our guest today is Hannah Howard, who's here to share her eating disorder story, especially as it relates to her career in the food industry and motherhood. Hannah is a writer and food expert who spent her formative years in New York, eating, drinking, serving, bartending, cooking on a line, flipping giant wheels of cheese. I can't wait to hear more about that one, Hannah. And managing restaurants. She's the author of two memoirs, Feast, True Love In and Out of the Kitchen, and Plenty, a Memoir of Food and Family. And her work has appeared in New York Magazine, Salon, and Self. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, daughter, and multi-poo. And we are so excited to have you with us today to talk about all of, all of those things and more. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and chat with you. Excellent. Well, let's just jump right in. You know, we know but there's a lot to be said about your relationship with food. And as we heard in your bio and we learn in both of your memoirs, your career is in the food world, first in restaurants, now in food writing, and you've been around food for a living. Well, surrounded by food for work, we also know you've struggled privately with us. So tell us a little bit about this complicated relationship with food, especially during the early part of your career. Absolutely. I've always loved food very much. My mom is an amazing cook and we always had wonderful food growing up. But that, like you said, that relationship with food was complicated and the love was, you know, on one side, there really was, I think, always, even in the midst of my struggle, a love, a joy, a curiosity, a passion about food. But there was also a fear of food. I think like many people, I just kind of internalized from a young age that there was something wrong with my body, that my body was too big. It was too much. I was the tallest one in the class. I was the first person to need a bra and that there was something shameful and wrong about that. And that if I restricted my food and could control my body, I could somehow fix myself or somehow control my life. And it didn't really work out that way. I think that's just, that's just the recipe for an eating disorder. But I think for so long, my food relationship has been characterized by on the one hand, some really positive stuff, some passion and celebration and love for food. And then on the other hand, this other darker, harder side and during my last almost 10 years now in recovery from an eating disorder, I feel like a lot of that project has been kind of separating out those two things and separating that, that good stuff and keeping that close to my heart and trying to, to the best of my ability, slowly but surely discard of that other stuff that really got in the way of my joy. It's fascinating to think about all of the complexity those, you know, the love of food and the experience with food goes hand in hand. I think a lot about appetite. So you, you speak a little bit about in your, in your writing about being a little afraid of your own appetite. And I think that that's a common experience, particularly for people who are told as a young person or feel like they're told as a young person that their appetite or themselves or something about them is too much. And you said a bit about that. I'm curious if you can 
tell us a little bit about that. How did that play out for you in your work, this appetite for food and, and fear of it as you were learning the food industry and learning things that you were really passionate about in the food industry? How did that experience of your appetite show up in all of that experience? Absolutely. Yeah, some of my, when you say appetite, one of the first memories that comes to my mind is the disapproving um, glance of, of my mom who had her own food struggles at a, at a party or some, or a dinner party when I would be perceived as partaking too much. And then it became, right, right, it becomes this like, if that's, if that's the fear, it, it just kind of grows and it becomes like this bigger, scarier thing. Yeah, I think appetite, like that sort of, that sense of too much is really rooted in that, that, that hunger for, for food. And, you know, one of um, these days I, I teach a, a food writing class and we read MFK Fisher, who's one of the like great, the grandmothers of food writing. And she writes that like, you know, that our hunger is often like our hunger for love our hunger for connection our hunger. And I think that that's just true that food is one hunger and we have so many hungers. And I think as, as women too, we get told to keep our hunger sometimes small. And I'm really glad that I can question that for today. Excellent. That is, is a, a beautiful point. And I'm glad that you can question it and, and have different answers, I think, than perhaps you might've had before. From, from what you could tell and from your experience, how prevalent are disordered eating or eating disorders in, among you know, people in those food environments? What have you noticed in, in those around you? My first kind of instinct was that, and, and also for me, this was just part of my experience having an eating disorder was that it was a very lonely experience. And so part of that was because I was really embarrassed and ashamed and didn't tell anybody about it. So I, part of me felt like I must be alone with this, you know, I'm the only one in the world. And then, wow, the more that I have written and talked and kind of come out about my own experience with my eating disorder, the more I've realized that it is incredibly common. I think especially with people in the food industry, I think there's a parallel to be drawn maybe with uh, bartenders being more likely to struggle with alcoholism. It just kind of makes sense that we're drawn to our demons. Like I shared earlier, like the things that can be amazing for us can also be really challenging and complicated for us. So not everyone, of course, in the food industry has an eating disorder, but I'm certainly not alone. And I needn't have been afraid to come out about my experience because I was just met with so much understanding, compassion, people relating. At first, it was really heartening that just, and it still, it still is like all these years later, just to remind you like, oh, I'm not alone. But then it became kind of depressing. Like it's really awful that so many people have to struggle with a really brutal disorder. And one that so many people, exactly like you're saying, feel alone and 
feel reluctant to share because of, of stigma or lack of understanding or lack of confidence that the world will know how to help if you put that need out there. And I think that's, we're seeing some change in that, but it's certainly concern for, for people that, you know, if I tell somebody, what will they do? Will they know what to do? Will I know what to do? So how did you learn to navigate your career in food while sort of protecting and prioritizing your recovery? Tell us a little bit about that feels like a, an interesting and delicate road to navigate. Yeah, it's still, I mean, I'm still figuring it out. I don't think I have all the answers. I think this is a challenge and it's a, it's a journey. And every day it's kind of an opportunity to like figure it out. So I feel like part of the, there's a few, like a few things that have been really essential. I think one of the things has been learning to kind of put food in its right proportion and its right size in my life. Because when I was consumed by my eating disorder, food was, it was my obsession and it occupied I don't know, 90, 95, 100% of my brain at any given moment. It's kind of amazing that I managed to have a career and friends and everything because it was really, it really loomed huge in my thoughts always. And so kind of prioritizing other parts of my life has been this huge relief and kind of putting it, re-imagining re, um, its, its place. And it's still, it's still an important part of my life, but it's not 90% of my life. Part of, and, and then part of that has also been finding friends and a community of people who also were in recovery and understood and just getting to have people to laugh and commiserate and people who get it, that just feels like a million times better. I still have people, you know, I can call when I, have a bad day because I still have a bad day sometimes because that's part of being human. I, I you know, I, I don't feel like I have all the answers, but I think that's okay. And I think that's part of it too, is just realizing that it's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay. I think my eating disorder too, like really wanted that this perfectionism kind of kept me really stuck. And in my recovery, I'm allowed to mess up and like I, I make a mistake and then I learn from the mistake and then I keep moving forward. Whereas in my eating disorder, it was more like groundhog day because I would just berate myself and then, you know, you never get out of that kind of rock of self-loathing. So just kind of some forgiveness some compassion some kindness, which does not come easily to me. So it's all a practice. That's so well said. It does strike me that so many people who struggle with eating disorders find compassion and kindness for others just part of their makeup, just part of their, their who they are. And yet the self-compassion is much trickier. That sort of compassion and kindness towards ourself can be so much harder to, to cultivate. It's so much harder. And that's one of the ways I think just kind of having that understanding has helped me to know, right, that it's harder for me to be nice to myself, but to try to imagine how I might treat a friend. And usually I pretty treat a friend pretty well. So if I can, tr you know, just try that, it's, it's an experiment sometimes still. That's excellent. Let's talk a little bit about how we talk about food. So, you know, at the Emily program and at, at Veritas, we 
often encourage people to you know, move away from the good and bad food labels on food. Food is just food and all foods can fit. Maybe not every food fits for every person, but food is really just food. And our culture really has a lot of different ideas on that concept. And we still hear a lot of language that suggests food is either good or bad, or somehow we are good or bad, words like naughty or sinful or guilt-free, particularly when that language is, is focused on, on women. As a food writer, what's your take on this language? How else can we be talking about food? Yeah, I think that this that is so deep, that kind of morality embedded in our perception of food and diet culture and you know, I, I always like kind of see it pop up and remember, oh yeah, this is everywhere. Even right, like uh, comments people make when they think you're not looking. Even I love watching the Great British Baking Show, and you know, Prue always says if something's like worth the calories, and I always say, I wish she, I wish she wouldn't say that. She just doesn't have to say that. So, yeah, I think I guess it, it starts with kind of calling calling it out, noticing it, being aware, because I think culture is so, it's like the air we breathe, it's everywhere. So it's so easy to just take it kind of for granted. And so to realize that this is not an inevitable thing, it doesn't have to be that way, is a start. I think for me too, I'm really aware of the media, the social media, I consume, what am I reading? What am I watching? I really try to surround myself with things that are like food positive and body positive and, and even not, it's like, you know, people are all, we're all kind of learning and no one's perfect and I'm not perfect. And I think this is just this journey of like, like I love the, you know, the name of your podcast. It's like this love of this peace and this love is, is hard won around food. It's really hard won. And I, I see it. I see, just see it everywhere. And so I just try in my own like little decisions in my, in my home, in my conversations, in the things that I write and the things that I talk about, I get to choose the words I use and they have weight and they matter. Yeah, food is, is it's beautifully said, food is not good or bad, it's just food. And I would really love it if Prue didn't say that on the show either. Every time I watch the British baking show. I'm like, no, please don't. Maybe we could, maybe together we could write a little letter, see if we could suggest something different. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to, to, you know, being an author and a food writer, you're also a mom. And so we have this whole other segment of life to think about. You have a, a daughter and another child on the way. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about, about your pregnancies. That's often a, a time that people speak about their relationship with food. And, and if we could dive into that a little bit into, into all three of your pregnancies, as we, we know you experienced a painful miscarriage, which you described so, so poignantly in plenty. And I think so many people can relate to that, the loss and the beauty and the, the depth of feeling that you express. Were you worried about the body changes or commentary? that comes with being pregnant. People feel free to say so many interesting things to women when they're pregnant. How have your experiences with pregnancy impacted your relationship with your body? Yes, I was worried as a person in recovery from eating, eating disorder, right? Just that I am sensitive to body 
stuff and exactly what you said pregnancy seems to bring it up and everyone feels all of a sudden comfortable like your body is their business one of my a family member at my baby shower was like how much weight did you gain I was like that's an interesting question <laughs> I don't even know how much weight I gained because I prefer to not know my weight so I do blind weight but even that sort of small aspect of knowing that I would go to the doctor a lot. They would weigh me a lot. Having heard anecdotally people share stories of being shamed about their weight, I was really nervous. And I think I've surprised myself a little bit what a positive experience it's been around recovery and body image for me. I think I heard this line of thinking before many times that it's really can be powerful instead of focusing on what our body looks like to focus on what it does. And, you know, our bodies are pretty amazing machineries. You know, even if we're not feeling great, like our body still does so much for us. But something about actually growing a human in my body really brought that to home in a new way. It just felt so kind of science fiction and amazing. You know, I've spent all this time being so hard on my body and so mean to my body. And here it is like bringing a person into the world. It's really cool. So I feel like that has been a positive experience. And there have been little pieces in my brain that kind of held on to old ideas about restrictions or restriction or dieting that really kind of dissolved with pregnancy. Like I didn't I didn't want to do that. I wanted to nourish myself and this little proto baby growing inside me. And that being said, when I lost my first pregnancy, it was also really hard. I think I, I understood theoretically that pregnancy loss is really common, but I still didn't really think it would happen to me. And just like my eating disorder had been kind of lonely, it did feel kind of like a lonely experience. And it felt kind of like my body had let me down. And so it was another interesting challenge to forgive my body. And, you know, if I didn't have that loss, which was really hard and sad and challenging, I wouldn't have my amazing daughter. So, you know, I don't have any great insight into the meaning of things, but it was just, it was a challenging journey, but it was a really positive journey for my relationship with my body. And I'm right now, as, as we're chatting, I'm really pregnant. <laughs> I'm like, not, I'm nine months pregnant. I'm really pregnant. I feel this baby wiggling inside me. And it's so, it's so cool. It's so amazing. And I'm really proud of my body and excited for what it's, what it's doing right now. That's so exciting. And so, so well put. I'm curious, as you think about your children and how you want to talk to them about food and how you already talked to your daughter about food. Any overarching philosophy you have as it relates to how you will talk about food with your kids? Yeah, people have asked me too about, you know, how I plan to pass on recovery or that sort of thing. And I think the best thing I can do is focus on my own recovery. I think my children will have their own relationship with food and their bodies, and I can just do everything 
I can, and I'm not saying this is easy either, but do everything I can to try to set as healthy as an example as I can and try to give them all that love and support that maybe was a little bit more complicated for me around my family and not because they didn't love me completely, but because they had their own stuff. But I don't know, it's interesting. Like it's even, you know, my daughter is a little bit more than a year and a half. And it's funny to watch her like pass through these different stages. She right now, she just wants to eat cheese, oranges and hummus, <laughs> which is like, okay, great. You know, we, we keep giving her other things. And um, those are the things that she's into these days. And, but I, I want her to have autonomy and joy and freedom and really good memories around food. That's my hope for her. That's a wonderful, wonderful hope. And it sounds like you are well on your way to cultivating that for her. How would you describe after all of the recovery work and healing you've done in the this concept of a relationship with food, how would you describe your relationship with food now? What does food mean to you these days? It's interesting too, like being really pregnant and having weird food. Like today I've eaten like a lot of toast because I'm weirdly again, like kind of nauseous. And this is the thing that feels like, to there's a beautiful bakery near here with some really good sourdough bread. And I've had a bunch of pieces of that with butter on it, like not too much else. And like, that's not, you know, that's, it's one day of me being really pregnant and like, that's what I can stomach. So that's what I'm eating. So I think it's like my food looks different based on my day. I think in my eating disorder, I was kind of obsessed with trying to have this like food look a perfect specific way. And in my recovery, it's kind of the opposite. I feel like my, I want my life to be, and you know, it's also a, a wild adventure and life looks all kinds of different ways since being a mom and since COVID and you know, who knows, but I want life to come first and kind of drive, be in the driver's seat and then food can follow from there, you know, and food can support that and food can be a part of that, but not like I'm trying to just, there's this like register of food that gets its own obsessive attention. I, I really want the attention to be in the people I'm with, the places I am, and then food follow from there food be part of that as it makes sense and be part of that story. And I think that's kind of what I've loved also writing about food is like food being the story of people, food being the story of communities, food being the story of tradition and like finding the excitement and the, the stories in the food is kind of a creative challenge of writing and of recovery. So well said. I, I think about some of the parts in your in your book in, in plenty when you're talking about your experience with a particular food. I, I love some of the imagery you have around cheese. And I feel like from reading your book, you know more about cheese than any other human that I know right now. So I, I, I'm really fascinated by that. Uh, that just seems so cool. But I remember a passage in your book where you're sort of wrestling with this relationship with cheese and how to manage that. And it sounds like the, now you're retained the passion you have for food and the passion you have for yourself 
and you found a way for those to peacefully coexist versus compete with each other in just a beautiful way. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's my goal. And I do really feel like that's been the great like achievement of my recovery in a way, which is really cool. It's I just realized that it's coming up on my 10 year anniversary, which is wild. So it's it's pretty amazing that I get to that I come from this place of just these I just I just still remember like it was yesterday waking up in the morning full of like regret about what I ate the night before feeling physically sick just really like in this dark place and to get to emerge into this amazing place where I get to work with cheese and sing the praises of cheese and enjoy delicious cheese with friends and really love it and really not feel that fear and self-loathing. It's just, it's really, really wonderful. I feel very lucky. That's spectacular. My, my last question for you, and, and we ask this of everybody who has a personal recovery story. So a lot of times people listening hear our stories and think, yeah, that's, you know, that's great, Hannah. That's beautiful. I'm so excited for you, but that is just not going to happen for me. Recovery is not possible for me. What would you say to somebody who might be thinking that right now? I kind of felt the same way. I kind of thought that this, these kind of eating disorder thoughts were just like, that was what my brain was like, that that was the, that was how I was going to have to live forever. And it's not. <laughs> and um, if I can, I mean, I really think that if I can recover, anyone can recover. I mean, this was like my thing. This was my best friend in a messed up way. And my whole inner world was this eating disorder. My inner world looks completely different for today. And I think, you know, I just think that it's a slow, like, you know, also we can be really, us eating disorder people can be really hard on ourselves. And I lived one way for many years. And so learning to live a new way, think new thoughts, have a new perspective, it takes time. And I think 10 years in, like I've come so far and I still have far to go. You know, I still am like learning. So I think that give yourself some, and we talked before about how hard it was to give ourselves some compassion and kindness, but as much as you can, you deserve it and give yourself some patience, give yourself some time. And I really do believe that if it's possible for me, it's possible for anyone. Beautiful. Tell us where people can find you and find your books. Thank you. Um, you can find me on, I'm on Instagram. I'm Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H-M, like Mary Howard on Twitter with no M, just Hannah Howard. And my books are available on Amazon. They're available on Bookshop. They're available wherever books are sold. They're called Feast and Plenty. And it always feels like the biggest honor for anyone to read something I wrote. So that's it. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story and your thoughts and for really bringing us in to a view of, of all that is your experience. It's been really wonderful. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Julian. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.